Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us hear the word of God as we find it written in St. Matthew's Gospel, reading there in the 16th chapter, beginning at the 13th verse. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Of whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjuna, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning, dear friends, in Christ Jesus. I suppose even though it's a bit rainy and a bit dark and dismal, we can say that it is a good morning because it's Sunday, and this is the day which the Lord hath made, and I hope that all of us are happy to be able to be here in God's house and to worship our Lord. Today, as you know, is the second Sunday after Easter. It goes by a rather imposing name, Mr. Cordia Domini Sunday. That's Latin. The intro for the day starts out, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. And misericordia domini means the goodness of the Lord. So this is the goodness of the Lord Sunday. And in the text that I just read for our sermon, a God, our Lord, our living Christ certainly shows us how good he is. Because in this text there is a promise that Jesus gives us. And believe you me, it's a promise that we need for today. It all occurred, oh, it was about two years and a half in his public ministry, about six months before his death, when he took the twelve and he was up in Caesarea Philippi. Now, that's up in northern Galilee, and that distinguishes that Caesarea from the Caesarea city that was located over on the Mediterranean Sea. He was up there in the north, and he had the twelve alone with him, and he wanted to talk to them. And he said to them, and now you've been with me for some time, and you've heard what people are saying. What are they saying about me? What do they think about me? And the disciples said, well, some of them think you're John the Baptist, come back to life. You're Elijah the prophet that's come back. You're Jeremiah that's come back, or you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus looked at the twelve, and he said, now you men, what do you say? What do you think about me? Then it was that Simon Peter, who was the spokesman, who spoke for the twelve, he said this. He says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus was very pleased with that expression and with that confession. And he said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. He said, Flesh and blood didn't reveal it. You didn't get that from a natural source. He says, My Father in heaven revealed that unto you. And then he said, And thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Then there came from the very mouth of your living Christ and mine this tremendous promise. He told the twelve that day up on the Caesarean Philippian Highway, I'm going to establish my church, and I promise you this, 
that the gates of hell shall never prevail against my church. I want you to know that I make this promise to you, that hell and all the satanic hordes shall never be able to overthrow my church. My church is going to stand invincible. My church is going to stand unconquerable. My church is going to be a victorious church. It's going on to the end of time. You and I need that promise today. And as the living Christ on the second Sunday after Easter speaks to you and me, he calls to you and to me as Christians, as his followers, to believe with all our heart, just to stake our lives on this promise, never to doubt it for a moment, that his church is going to stand forever, that it is invincible, it is unconquerable, that the very gates of hell, Satan and the fallen angels, shall never be able to conquer his church. Jesus says, my church is going on to victory. My church is going on to the end of time. My church is going to pay up. It's going to pay 100 cents on the dollar. It's going to pay with interest. My church is going to give deliverance from hell and the gift of heaven to everyone that belongs to my church. Jesus calls to you and me, you believe it with all your heart, and don't ever doubt it for a moment. But you and I may say today in our 20th century, but this, again, this is a precarious time in which to live. We may have our doubts and we may say, oh, I'd like to believe that the gates of hell shall never prevail against this church. I'd like to believe that it's going on to victory. I would like to believe that it's going to pay up a hundred cents on the dollar. I'd like to believe that everybody in that church is going to have deliverance from eternity and hell and the gift of heaven. But we may say, but look at the church today. Where is there any evidence? Where is there any guarantee? Where do we have any assurance that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? We may look at the church with dismal eyes this morning. We may say, well, you can almost hear its death rattle right now. It's almost all over except the funeral. There are those that are saying Christianity is a passing thing. It's something that was here, but it was only temporary, and it's going to be gone. And you and I may say, oh, it does seem to be so hopeless. Why do we continue? Why do we hold fast to the church? Is it going on to victory? Is it invincible? Is it unconquerable? Is it going to really pay out at the end of time a hundred cents on the dollar and interest to boot? We may say, where is there any proof? And you know, it's a wonderful thing. When Jesus spoke to the twelve that day up on the Caesarean Philippian Highway, he gave them proof. And I think in this 20th century, we ought to look at the Church of Jesus Christ and we ought to say, what evidence, what proof, what sureties, what guarantees do we have? that the church of Jesus Christ that's going on and it's invincible, it'll never be conquered, it will never be overthrown, it's going on and it's going to pay out, and you and I may trust that Jesus, the living Christ in the first place, would remind you and me of this evidence, the evidence as regards his church that the foundation of his church is no less than he who is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and not a human being. When we turn to the word of God, we may say, what did he say when Peter gave that noble confession and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God? And what did he mean when he said, thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? It isn't difficult if we let the word of God speak for itself. He said, thou art Peter, and that is masculine. You are Peter the rock. 
And then he said, and upon this rock, and now in the Greek, that word is Petra, that word is feminine gender. So therefore we know that he was not referring to Peter as a person. He said, you are Peter, Petrus the rock, and on this rock, Petra, so it can only mean one thing on the basis of scripture, it was the truth that Peter had just spoken, that confession that he had spoken for the other eleven men, the truth that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, I'm going to establish my church, men, and I'm going to establish it on this Petra, this rock, on the truth that I am the Messiah, the Christ, I am the Son of the living God. And therefore, the church that Jesus established was not based on Peter, who was a sinner like you and like I am. Again, the very foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. He was the Savior. He was God the Son himself. And he established that church, don't forget, friends, with his own blood. Christ loved the church, the word of God says, and gave himself for it. This is also known as Good Shepherd Sunday. He was the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. When you and I know that it was God's Son that came out of the ivory palaces and came into this world, he was born a human being of the Virgin Mary. He was without sin. He was true God and man. And that he went to Calvary's cross as your substitute and mine, and there he bore our guilt and our punishment. He bore hell and our stead, and he merited heaven and eternal life for the entire human race. That's how the church was established, and that's why it has these blessings to give, because he was no less than God. And therefore you and I said, where is there any evidence that the church is going on, that it's going on to victory, that it's invincible, that it absolutely is going to conquer, and it's going to pay off 100 cents on the dollar plus interest? Why, the very fact that the church still exists today. Need I remind you that when he spoke on the Caesarean Philippian Highway, that's nearly 2,000 years ago, can you imagine the stranger of Galilee speaking to twelve holy men and saying, I am going to establish my church and to be able to promise and to say, in the very gates of hell shall never overthrow my church. And here you and I stand nearly 2,000 years later and we say to ourselves, and the church of Jesus Christ is still here. It is still here and the very fact that it still exists in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword. In spite of all those that have said, oh, don't you hear the death rattle? It's about all over with. It's going to be annihilated. We are going to put it out of business. But for 2,000 years, nearly 20 centuries, it still stands. Evidence number one. We say to ourselves, when the living Christ on the Caesarean Philippian Highway in our 20th century says, I call upon you, believe this promise that I made with all your heart. Don't ever doubt it for a moment, even though, again, you may grow faint-hearted and you may get weak in the knees, and you may say, why, I can sort of, I can hear the death rattle of the Christian church. It's about all over with the funeral. And Jesus would say, listen, I promise you that the gates of hell shall never prevail against my church. My church is going on to victory. My church is invincible. My church is unconquerable. My church is going to pay up 100 cents on the dollar plus interest. My church is going to give deliverance from hell and the gift of eternal life to every man in that church. Don't you ever doubt it. And we may say, but Lord Jesus, where is there any evidence? Uh, where is there uh, any assurance? Where is there any guarantee? Jesus, the living Christ, would remind you and me in the second place, here is evidence. Not only the evidence when we look at the foundation, that the foundation was no less than he, the Son of God, not a human being, but Jesus would remind you and me this morning, look at the evidence I have given to my church, the keys of the kingdom. 
and we may stop for a moment. We say, well, what's this all about, the keys of the kingdom? He said to Peter, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The first thing that bothers us, we say, did he give something to Peter that he didn't give to the other eleven? Well, if you turn to the 18th chapter of Matthew, you'll find that Jesus repeated these words to the twelve one day when he meant them all. He said, Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If you turn to John's Gospel in the 20th chapter, you'll find that on Easter Sunday night when he appeared to the disciples behind locked doors, he said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Then he said, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. So what do we say? He didn't give Peter any authority that the others didn't have. Nowhere in the New Testament does Peter ever manifest any authority above the other eleven, at no time. But what did he mean when he said, I give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven to all of them? What are the keys? Well, when it's, it's plural keys, we think of two keys. One key that would lock heaven, and the other key that would unlock heaven. And he is saying to them, he's saying to his church, here is his church. Here are the twelve on the Caesarean Philippian highway. I am giving to my church when I establish it the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I am giving to my church the power to lock and to unlock heaven. In other words, I am giving to my church the power to forgive sins. You and I may say, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted. God alone forgives sins. Let there be no doubt about it. You and I do not forgive sins, but Jesus Christ gave the authority and the power to forgive sins to his church. As Martin Luther says, if you remember your catechism, what is the office of the keys? And he answers, it is the peculiar church power that Christ is giving to his church on earth to forgive the sins of the penitent, to retain the sins of the impenitent, so long as they do not repent. The church has been given by Jesus the keys of the kingdom. It has been given the power to forgive sins. To say to one who comes into the kingdom, your sins are forgiven, heaven is unlocked. To say to one who rejects the gospel, your sins are not forgiven, heaven is locked for you. How does the church use this power, the office of the key? Why, it uses it in the promulgation and the propagation of the gospel. Take the gospel, the good news, it has two sides, doesn't it? What is the gospel? The good news that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came into the world and died on Calvary's cross for you and me and rose again from the dead. He is our living Christ who has merited deliverance from hell and the gift of heaven for all men. That's the gospel. And therefore the gospel, when the church proclaims it, it calls to men believe it. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus. The other side of the coin is this, if you reject him, if you refuse to believe in him, then again, what happens? There is no forgiveness. The church says you are not forgiven. You are not a member of the church because you refuse to repent of your sins and therefore heaven is locked. But in the promulgation of the gospel, you and I may say, well, where is there any evidence that the church of Jesus Christ is going to be victorious? Well, we have to say here it is nearly 20 centuries later and the gospel is still being preached. That's what I'm talking about right now. And we've got to say this, that whenever the gospel is preached, the church of Jesus Christ grows. Oh, I know we've had our Lenins and our Stalins, and I know we've got our mail, and I know they have put to death millions of Christians. I know that many Christians have gone to their death, but I also know this, and so do you, that whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed by his church, souls are won for the kingdom of God. The church is not only still here, 
But I want you to know it's still growing. In spite of fire, dungeon, and sword, the Church of Jesus Christ still grows. Do you have any idea about how many Christians there are on the face of the earth at this time? Those that can be tabulated, again, records say over 900 million. It is almost reaching the billion number. That means that the next largest religion, Hinduism, and after that, Islamism, that those two combined are less than the number in the Church of Jesus Christ, even the nominal ones. We are approaching the one billion mark. Does that mean the death rattle? I don't think so. Does that mean that the Church of Jesus Christ is dying and it's all over except the requiem? I don't believe so. When Jesus Christ stood on the Caesarean Philippian Highway 20 centuries ago and he said to his church, I'm going to build my church and you are my church, you twelve, you're the start of it, and I want you to know that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And believe you me, the powers of Satan and hell, they are not destroying the church. It is still going on, and it is still growing. And don't you ever let anybody tell you anything different. That's evidence number two, and then there's evidence number three. Jesus says, hold this truth and hold this promise with all your heart and don't ever give it up and don't despair and don't get weak in the knees and don't say, oh, what's the use? It's all over but the requiem, the death rattle is here for the Christian church. Jesus would remind you, me, this living Christ, that again, we look again at the church and to know that he is the living Son of God, the living one who is going to return. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if he's the Son of the living God, then he lives too. He came back on Easter, didn't he? He's alive. And Jesus says, don't forget, when you look at my church, I am the living Christ. And because I live, I'm coming back. And that bothers us too, doesn't it? We say, why doesn't he come? Or why here it is nearly 2,000 years since he spoke these words of promise on the Caesarean Philippian Highway. Why doesn't he come back? And we say, oh, we're so ready for him, and why doesn't he come back? And then we may say, uh, we get wishing these, oh, he's not coming back. He just told us that he's not able to come back. He isn't going to come back for his church. We waited so long, why doesn't he? But you say, if you know your scripture, remember he said one day, he said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. He said, first of all, I want you to know this, that until my gospel is preached in all the world, I want it to be a universal proclamation, and I want it to reach all nations, and then, he said, the end's coming, then I'll come again. You know, Peter says, with the Lord, you know, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. God never gets in any hurry. Only you and I get ourselves fretting, and we stew, and we get in a hurry. Now, God's in no hurry. You see, the Lord of the church is in no hurry. He says, I'm waiting. I'm waiting purposely so that the gospel can reach to the ends of the earth. And we can see in our 20th century, by means of radio, the gospel has penetrated, as far as we know, to every nation. But evidently it hasn't penetrated deeply enough. It hasn't done its work in a qualitative sense as Jesus wants it. And he's waiting and he's saying, when the gospel has reached everyone that I wanted to reach, when it has penetrated and it has gone into every nation, when this great good news is heard, then I'm going to come. And therefore, what does it mean, the evidence that if he's waiting, 
that other souls may be added. What's the evidence? Why, listen, the evidence is this, that not only is the church going on to victory, but believe you me, it's going to be a pretty good-sized church. I know sometimes we wail and say, oh, what a small group's going to be saved. I don't want to go to heaven because I feel so lonesome. We have people tell us that, listen, don't you ever kid yourself. He is waiting so that the last living stone shall be added to his structure, and then he is going to come. Remember John on Patmos, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had a vision of heaven, and John said, And I, John, saw a multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb. John said, I saw such a vast host you couldn't number them. Then I know Revelation talks about the 144,000. Some of you have asked me, will there only be 144,000 saved? Well, bear in mind, when John saw numbers that no man could number, then he talks about the 144,000. Evidently, the 4,000 surely has to be figurative. And that's a beautiful number. Go back to the Old Testament. There were 12 tribes, weren't there? 12 patriarchs. They represent the saved of the Old Testament, looking forward to the Christ. There were 12 apostles in the New. They represent the saved in the New. Take the 12 of the Old Testament, multiplying it by all the generations, by the 12 of the New. 12 times 12 gives you 144. This is the multiplicity of all the saved, times the figure 1,000, which is the number of completeness. And therefore, the 144,000 is nothing more than the unnumbered multitude that shall stand before the throne. You and I say, oh, the church is on its last legs. Everything's over but the requiem. You can hear the death rattle. Jesus, he stood up there on the Caesarean Philippian highway one day, and he said, listen, I want you to know that I'm going to establish my church in the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Satan and the hordes of hell. Jesus says, it's my church. I have omnipotence. I have all power in heaven and in earth. I have conquered. I am the risen Christ. My church is indestructible. My church is going to pay off. I'm coming again. I'm going to pay a hundred cents on the dollar with interest. I'm going to give you deliverance from hell and the gift of eternal life. Don't you ever doubt it for a moment. And that's why in this 20th century, and we sometimes say, oh, why, why go to church and why keep up with this thing? Why give of our money? And why go ahead and stew and sweat? Uh, this thing, why you can hear the death rattle. My Lord stood on the Caesarean Philippian highway one day and he made a tremendous promise and we need it today. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It ought to mean this. Let's believe it. Let's say to ourselves, I'm going to believe it because after all, I've got all the evidence I need. He is the foundation and he has all power. The church is still here. He's given the church the keys of the kingdom. The gospel is being faithful. The kingdom of God, the church is still growing and he's coming back, and there's going to be a huge multitude, more than any man can number. What greater evidence do you and I need? So when we get weak in the knees, and when we are ready to hear the death rattle, we ought to turn and look at the foundation and say, after all, the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. It's got a divine one. As Paul said, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Remember, there is one institution in all the world that's going to last, and that's the church. About time we're believing that, isn't it? There is one institution that isn't ever going to fail. It's absolutely invincible. It's going on to victory. That's the church. You and I ought to have that kind of a spirit instead of saying, oh, it's just gone to pieces. Communism is so great it's going to overthrow it. 
Well, I look at the foundation once in a while and thank God for this joy that this is the one that's going on. And then this morning we ought to say to ourselves, do I belong to this church? Do I belong to it? And we ought to stop a moment and say, what, what church was it that he established? Was it the Lutheran Church or was it the Roman Catholic Church or the Methodist or the Presbyterian or the United Church of Christ or what was it? Bear in mind, he established one church. It is made up of all true believers in Jesus Christ. We confess it every Sunday. We believe that it exists on earth, even though you can't see it. It is that, what is the church? It is an assembly. It's a group of people. It doesn't mean a building. It is the people of God. The church of Jesus Christ on earth is that assembly where people have honest to God repented of their sins. And they have honest to God put their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, regardless of their denominational handle. Those who have a living faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This ought to be so paramount in your life. Listen, the church is going on. Don't let it leave you. Again, we may stop and say, look at my sins. Jesus Christ, he died for your sins and mine. Here is hope. Here is life. Have you and I surrendered to him? What's wrong when he calls to the gospel right now that you and I surrender? But we tell him we're sorry enough to quit those things that we know are wrong. That we're going to live the way he wants us to live. We're going to put our trust in him so that we can have this joy that this church that's going on the victory, it's not going to fail you and me. You and I may fail it, but it isn't going to fail you and me because one day he said, you know, the gates of hell aren't going to prevail. It's not going to overthrow my church, and it isn't. What more evidence do you and I want if we just look around a little bit? Well, then when we are in this kingdom of God and we have surrendered and committed ourselves to him, then we ought to say, well, if he's waiting, if he's waiting so this gospel can penetrate more deeply and more qualitatively, we ought to say, I'm going to be a witness like I've never been before about Jesus Christ and his church. What kind of a witness are we? I know we all like to witness by our life. We say, well, I live in such a way that here is a witness. But if you and I are to witness also by our deeds, by deeds of mercy and kindness and consideration for our fellow man, and then to witness by our words. I always think of the Scotch mother when her son said, Mother, I'm leaving today. I'm going to the foreign mission field. I'm going to be a missionary. And then mother was ill, and he said, I may never see you again. When that mother kissed him goodbye, and she said, Son, I may never see you again on earth, but I hope to see you in heaven. But remember one thing when you get to your foreign mission field. And he said, What's that, brother? And she said, Be sure and speak a good word for Jesus Christ. How many times last week did you speak a good word for Jesus Christ? Did you at any time? Are you afraid? Are we embarrassed? Oh, Jesus said, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Just a little common sense. Do we have any idea what it may mean just to speak a good word about Christ on the job to somebody? I like this. Jesus studied his men. He took the twelve and he had them alone on the Caesarean Philippian Highway. There was no bunch around, no multitude, whatever. He was speaking to them alone. Sometimes when you and I get our friends alone who don't know him, we don't embarrass them. Many a time when I've walked out the hospital and the nurse has said, will you go in and see so-and-so? They desperately need somebody to go in. You can sort of sense it sometimes when you go in to talk to somebody. They're a little bit embarrassed to have a minister. Oh, they don't want anybody in this bed to hear when you try to be common sense about it, you just reach up occasionally and you pull the curtain and then you stand and you talk. And my experience is this, that when you're alone with somebody who, again, and men, men, are, men are hungry for something, and they're looking for something, they, they aren't embarrassed. 
Oh, just a little word for Jesus Christ. When did you say a nice word about Christ? The kingdom's going on. Your friends and mine are going to miss it. This thing's going on. It's going to pay a hundred cents on the dollar and it gives us deliverance and life and salvation. Oh, what a word may be that we may have the joy that somebody will be in heaven and they will share the eternal life that you and I will have in Jesus Christ. It'll make our joy more full. Do you ever think how much joy it is to, to Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, that in eternity uh, Andrew can say, I've got this joy, Pete. I was the one that introduced you to Jesus. Remember, I, I spoke a good word about Jesus to you, Pete, and you, you met him. And Simon Peter will have to say to his brother, yes, it was because you, you spoke a good word one day about Jesus to me, that, that I met him. When are we going to say, oh, I don't want my friends to miss this. It's going on, but oh, the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. Oh, don't die until you've won somebody. You've said something nice about Jesus Christ. It will amaze you how some will appreciate, especially those that are groping, those that, again, have a conscience that's bothering, those who don't know what to do about sin. Oh, just to say something nice about Jesus. What a joy, because you see that church is going on. We ought to sing the song of victory as we walk the glory road. We ought to say, I don't hear any death rattle on the church. I'm not going to get ready a requiem to bury it. We ought to join hands and walk the glory road and say, My church, my church, my dear old church, my fathers and my own, on prophets and apostles built in Christ the cornerstone. All else beside by storm or tide may yet be overthrown, but not my church, my dear old church, my fathers and my own. Write it on your hearts up on the Caesarean Philippian Highway. Your living Jesus and mine said one day, The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. On to victory. Amen. The peace of God which passeth all human understanding. Keep and unite your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting.